from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen. Hi, this is Newt. 2020 is going to be one of the most extraordinary election years of our lifetime. I want to invite you to join my inner circle as we discuss each twist and turn in the presidential race in my members-only inner circle club. You'll receive special flash briefings, online events, and members-only audio reports from me and my team. Here is a special offer for my podcast listeners. Join my inner circle today at newtsinnercircle.com slash podcast. And if you sign up for a one or two year membership, you'll get 10% off your membership price and a VIP fast pass to my live events. Join my inner circle today at newtsinnercircle.com slash podcast. Use the code PODCAST at checkout. Sign up today at newtsinnercircle.com slash podcast and use the code PODCAST. Hurry, this offer expires February 14th. On this episode of Newt's World. You know, I came from a family that suffered from addiction to alcohol. My father really had problems with alcohol. And my mother was you know, really debilitated uh, by her alcoholism and depression. And my, of course, my father suffered tremendous post-traumatic stress. There's no one who would better fit a candidate for suffering from PTSD than my late father after he witnessed his brothers being shot, killed. The fact of the matter is my family was very emotionally impacted and psychologically impacted by everything that happened. And my brother and sister and I grew up in that house where all of that was going on.
On this episode of Newt's World, I'm joined by Congressman Patrick Kennedy for a candid discussion on what it's like growing up as a Kennedy, following in his father and uncle's footsteps into public office, only to have addiction tear his life apart, and ultimately causing him to hit rock bottom. Now in his own recovery, he's become a leading national voice in addiction issues and sobriety, mental health issues, and our current national discussion about the legalization of marijuana. I've known him for many years, and it's a privilege to have him join me to tell his personal story. Patrick, tell us about the day you hit rock bottom, the car crash at the U.S. Capitol that made national headlines. Uh, sure, Mr. Speaker, and it's great to be with you and to share opportunity to talk about an issue that I think is really at the core, an existential crisis for our country, and that's the epidemic of addiction and mental illness and the rising suicide and overdose rates and the enormous number of people who are suffering from addiction and depression and anxiety underneath that terrible tip of the iceberg, which are the uh, completed suicides and overdoses. You know, this is a very personal issue to me, and I think it's probably personal to most Americans. I come at it from a number of different perspectives. First and foremost, I myself am someone who lives in long-term recovery, and that means I haven't had to use alcohol or mind-altering substance since uh, February 22nd, 2011. And, um, what happened to me, uh, like what happens to most people who end up in recovery, is that we hit a bottom. And, and that bottom for me began when I uh, had that car crash uh, in the United States Capitol. It was a number of years after that that I decided that I could not sustain my service in Congress given the fact that my addiction was a progressive illness and it was getting worse and worse. And I worried about some incident like the car crash happening again if I didn't leave Congress and devote myself full-time to my recovery, which is what I did in 2010. But I say all that because for those who are listening, you know, it's often a very circuitous route uh, that we take to finally reach sobriety. The car accident was, if you will, a real wake-up call, even though I was essentially um, uh, unconscious when I was driving because I had been taking Ambien in order to uh, try to sleep. Uh, this was about three months after I got out of rehab for uh, Oxycontin addiction, and um, I, I found it very difficult to sleep because I'd often uh, self-medicated with, with Oxycontin. Uh, what happened to me was I, I, I you know, woke up the next day and my car wasn't where I had parked it, and I had this panic uh, overcome me. I went to the Capitol. I voted a couple of times, and then I got a call in the cloakroom, and my chief of staff said that I had better come back because... He had learned from the Capitol Police that I had crashed my car into a um, security barrier. Apparently, at 3 in the morning the night before, I had gotten up, gotten to my car, thought I needed to vote, and, and went to uh, drove to the Capitol and, uh, where and I crashed my car. You know, it was, uh, uh, as you can imagine, a cluster of national media kind of descended upon me 
as everyone tried to figure out, you know, where I had been the night before, you know, what influence was I under, did I go to a bar? And it, it was the usual kind of, you know, purient interest in someone else's tragedy. And, you know, what happened was that I went back to rehab. I thought I was going to lose my political career because, of course, people were calling on me to resign my office. I went to back to rehab, but I spent the whole time there as opposed to just getting in and out, which I had done just a few months earlier because I was worried that anyone would find out that I had been to rehab. This time, uh, essentially, the gig was up, if you will. People knew that I had uh, been suffering, and I had to admit it myself. Is there a lesson the rest of us can learn from your experience? I guess at the end of the day, what I think is the most important challenge for us as a nation is what was a challenge for me personally, and that is coming to the realization that I had a problem. They say for those who suffer from mental illness and addiction that we're the last ones to know that we have a problem, and it's the lack of insight um, that is the single characteristic of anyone uh, suffering from a mental illness and addiction. And I would say that um, not only do many of us suffer a lack of insight if we're not constantly working on a greater consciousness about our illness, but I think our country is suffering from a lack of insight as to how impactful these illnesses are and how little attention we give to actually addressing a better um, strategy for addressing these illnesses. What was the turning point? How have you stayed sober? If people want help, there, there is help. Unfortunately, there isn't a system which is in place that works in an optimal way to kind of uh, give them the best chance of reaching sobriety. You know, we could put that system together. Mr. Speaker, it should be put together and, and, and incorporate both the medical system as well as other systems and yet we just haven't gotten about the process of putting the political will to, to uh, create that system. This is a chronic illness. It's not something that can just be addressed with a, a, a quick you know, rehab, or, or it is kind of a lifetime commitment to recovery, much like someone with diabetes would struggle with trying to keep their sugar in balance and try to, on a day-to-day -day basis, manage uh, an illness that requires their constant attention. That's what recovering from addiction requires. So I would uh, tell them that, you know, 12-step recovery is, in my view, the best, you know, cognitive behavioral uh, therapy uh, that I know of. And I have uh, pretty much surveyed every type of uh, treatment and uh, therapy that there is in this country. And personally, I've kind of been on this Lewis and Clark voyage myself through every type of rehab and inpatient and outpatient and psychiatric uh, treatment there, that there is. So I, I know of what I speak, and that is that there's at the end of the day, nothing that works better than being in recovery with your peers, because the best way to achieve lasting sobriety is to build a network of support. And professionals can be very helpful, but they cannot be there in the kind of uh, ongoing way than, than your friends and, and those that are 
you know, uh, walking and trudging the road with you in recovery. So uh, I, I would encourage them to to find uh, recovery through the twelve step uh, programs, which are available to uh, all, and uh, frankly are you know working miracles every single day all across this country and all across the world. If somebody walks up to you and says, you know, I know that I'm addicted. I really would like to go through a recovery program, but when I try, I just seem to fail. What's your advice to that person? How, how do you sort of hold their hand or try to help them have a sense of that they can get through it? Yeah, I mean, it shouldn't feel like a death sentence, but I know that to people who uh, you know are trying to think about getting on the road to recovery and kind of what that means, you know, we, we take it really simply... And that is, it's just for today. You know, we just decide today uh, not to drink or, or take drugs. You know, as my sponsor tells me, you know, tomorrow, Patrick, you can, you know, have the biggest, wildest party and do everything you want tomorrow. But just not for today. Just, just today. And then, you know, tomorrow comes around, I make the decision, well, no, today I'm not going to drink or drug. You know, or if it's a really... A difficult day, you know, this afternoon I'm not going to work, or, you know, for the next hour. And then I call my uh, sponsor, I call my uh, support group, and I get help because what I end up doing is plugging into what's ever going on in their life. And, um, you know, then I find that they've got their own challenges uh, that day, and they're sharing those with me, and all of a sudden I don't feel as much alone. And I really think it's that notion of, constantly being connected um, to other people in a very intimate way. Um, that is what recovery is about. And so it's not something that you really you know, don't want to do for the rest of your life. In fact, it's a, a, an ongoing process of trying to do what you know, has frankly been very foreign to people who have fallen into addiction, and that is to connect with people because these illnesses of addiction really isolate you and disconnect you from your friends and family. And the best way to, you know, treat these illnesses is to engage in real intimate connections where you're sharing everything that's going on in your life. You're not holding back. You're not shaming yourself. You're, you're honest about what your challenges are. And as a result, life is a little bit easier to, to shoulder. And so I would also say that there's an element here of uh, spirituality, a, a very important element. And what we say in recovery is that our drinking and drugging is but a symptom of our problem. And our problem is a lack of power. We cannot solve all the problems that we want to in our lives. And, and that's the reason we drink and drug, is to self-medicate because we can't manage. We need a power, and that power is God for me, I, you know, as you may know, gone back to my uh, religion of my, of my childhood. I have uh, baptized all my children, and my wife and I have gotten married in, in the Catholic Church. We uh, initially got uh, a civil marriage and then decided that we wanted to get married in the church and went through a process to do that. And at the same time, frankly, we recently baptized our, our fifth child. So 
life to me uh, in recovery is is much more than not drinking or drugging. It's about um, how to live a life that is, you know, frankly, kind of follows the ancient tenets of you know what we should be doing with our lives, as opposed to falling victim to what they call the seven deadly sins. Uh, Pride, anger, envy, greed, lust, gluttony, and sloth. <laughs> and all I know is that uh, those uh, seven deadly sins have been bedevilments uh, for me, and I need God's help in order to uh, extinguish them. And I often get uh, God's help through uh, turning to my fellows in recovery. And that, to me, is what uh, being in long-term sobriety means. When we come back, we'll talk about what it was like growing up in the Kennedy family and being a congressman at the same time your father is the senior senator from Massachusetts. I think one of your amazing accomplishments during your service in Congress was getting the Mental Health Parity and Addiction Equity Act of 2008 signed into law. Will you tell us that story? Well, as you know, Mr. Speaker, at the time that I had come back from rehab, I was still the main sponsor of the Mental Health Parity and Addiction Equity Act, which uh, basically said that insurance companies couldn't treat illnesses of the brain any differently than they uh, reimbursed for other illnesses of the body. And it seems so rational and obvious, but as you mentioned, it's not an easy prospect when we are living in this nation with so much denial about the fact that these are real illnesses and that uh, all that we've learned from neuroscience, you know, we've actually known intuitively for years, and that is that these are, are real, they're physical, they're debilitating, and they're deadly. So the irony of all ironies is I won my next uh, election and it was the following session that we passed the parity bill. And the uh, amazing thing is, you know, due to the uh, untimely death of Paul Wellstone, a tragic uh, passing of Paul Wellstone on the Senate side, he was our main champion on the Senate side, it had to fall on, on my late father, uh, Senator Edward Kennedy, to sponsor the legislation as the uh, chairman of the committee. Basically, you know, he, he took over for leading that legislation, which meant that I had to negotiate with my late father in in what went into the parity bill. And that is pretty much illustrative of what, you know, we as a nation are grappling with, and that is coming to grips with this. My father was of a, a, a prior generation that really didn't want to acknowledge that these were uh, real illnesses because they were brought up with the idea that they were character flaws and there were moral uh, weaknesses, uh, um, and uh, that was the generation that he came from. So he was, needless to say, very distraught and upset with me for a good part of my life while I was suffering from these illnesses, and he really just thought I needed a good swift kick in the ass, which in some respects I probably needed. But that was the attitude that he had as to how to treat these illnesses, and that it was really stern and disciplined, uh, way and frankly, our country does it the same way. We we arrest people, we incarcerate people, we punish people for their illnesses. 
So I had to negotiate with my father, and, and the Senate bill did not include addiction and depression and anxiety and post-traumatic stress. It only included what they called biologically-based disorders. You know, so that was kind of the classic fight in this country is what is a real mental illness? So needless to say, he did help me pass the, uh, the House bill, which was the more expansive version of the parity law. And, uh, and that happened because he asked his friend uh, Chris Dodd to help me. And Chris wrote the whole uh, TARP bill uh, into our H.R. Uh, 1424. And that was the Mental Health Parity and Addiction Equity Act, which means that, Mr. Speaker, I'm the sponsor not only of the parity law, but technically speaking, I'm the sponsor of the largest federal bailout of our nation's banks uh, in our country's history, uh, just to show people how uh, this bill did not pass because there was some great outcry from the American public that you know they wanted their friends and family members to no longer be discriminated against. It happened because it was in the Senate, and it was Chris Dodd was my dad's friend, and my dad was uh, uh, really dying at the time, and he, my dad had asked Chris to, to help him with this, uh, get my, my bill off the desk. And Chris, you know, of course, just happened at the same time to be facing this economic crisis that hit this country with the banking collapse. And what he decided to do is take that whole bailout of our banks and, and put that whole legislation into, into H.R. 1424 in order to get our bill to pass. And, of course, uh, you can't make it up. That's how it passed. And, and again, the, the paradox is we, that bill was meant to stop our country from going into a gr another great financial depression, uh, like we saw in the 30s. And, and the underlying bill mandated treatment of, of depression for Americans. Patrick, we go back many years. People often are surprised because Washington is seen as such a partisan place. I have to ask you, you know, on our side of the aisle, we always saw your dad as a really tough negotiator who was very determined, often pleasant, but uh, but very firm in what he wanted. What was your experience trying to negotiate with him? I'd, I would think there are a lot of cross pressures when uh, you both represent the House, but you're also his son. Yes. Yeah, so the other perspective that I, I didn't talk about when I introduced the subject of my suffering from addiction was that... You know, I came from a family that suffered from addiction to alcohol. Uh, my father really had problems with alcohol. And my mother was, you know, really debilitated uh, by her alcoholism and depression. And, my, of course, my father suffered tremendous post-traumatic stress. If you ever wanted to um, look up post-traumatic stress in the dictionary, there's no one who would better fit a candidate for suffering from PTSD than my late father after he you know, witnessed his brothers being shot, killed, and numerous other tragedies. And so, you know, the fact of the matter is my family was very emotionally impacted and psychologically impacted by everything that happened to my family. And my brother and sister and I grew up in that house and uh, where all of that was going on. And I think that really had an impact on our own mental health. I think it's a genetic illness, personally. I think the depression that my mother suffered from, her mother suffered from, uh, her mother died at 61 and wasn't found for a week. 
in her uh, single-room apartment in Cocoa Beach, Florida. And that is, frankly, emblematic of anybody who suffers from an alcoholic death. They're often alone because these illnesses isolate people. You know, my mother suffered from that. My aunt, um, Candy, my mother's sister, suffered from it. All but one of her children suffered from it, as did my brother and sister and I. Just as an individual has to come to grips with, whether it's an addiction or it's a mental illness, we as a country now have such depth of problems with both addiction and with untreated or inappropriately treated mental illness that we almost need a national coming to grips parallel to what an individual has to do. I mean, I think that's a very interesting insight on your part to frame it that way. And I know you've been a tremendous advocate for making sure that we deal with mental health parity as a part of this. And you want to just for a minute share with all of us the struggle you had to get people to understand that mental health is integral to your health and to have a system which is only dealing with the physical side is to have a system which is utterly inadequate for the reality of how humans function. Frankly, I've traveled the country. I've spoken about this and the need for insurance companies to um, reimburse for these illnesses. I find that, you know, everybody has a story. And what's shocking to me is that no one wants to really make the move or talk about it. And, And that's how I found in my own family, no one wanted to talk about these things. They were supposed to be secrets. Of course, in my family, all of our secrets were published in numerous books. But in spite of that, I still myself thought that I had to keep, you know, the family secrets. And I think it's that silence, Mr. Speaker, that is really destructive to our country. I think we need to acknowledge and be proactive in intervening and preventing these illnesses from pathologizing by doing more in terms of early intervention. And, and we're, we're, we're losing so many people in this country because we're not doing what we know works. And that's what's so frustrating to me. Next, we'll have a candid discussion about the legalization of marijuana. An unfairly discharged Marine with a dark secret. A brilliant intelligence officer recovering from tragedy. This unlikely pair are brought together to stop a deadly Russian plot against the heart of the American system. Number one, New York Times bestselling authors Newt Gingrich and Pete Early return with a new series filled with action and intrigue that captures the tensions and divides of America and the world today. Collusion, a novel by Newt Gingrich. Available on Amazon.com and Audible now. In the United States, there are now 10 states that have legalized the use of marijuana for recreational purposes. Alaska, California, Colorado, Maine, Massachusetts, Michigan, Nevada, Oregon, Vermont, and Washington. And another 22 states have legalized marijuana for medical treatment. Patrick, against this backdrop of legalization that is sweeping our nation, what do we know about the emerging business of big marijuana? and the short-term and long-term health effects of marijuana use. We love our addictions in America. We love our addictions. I live not too far from Atlantic City. I mean, it's, it's everywhere. And we as a nation are suffering enormous and epidemic rates of addiction just overall. 
it's just a question of this will not be a a solution to trying to stop future addiction if we were to end this idea that uh, it's okay to commercialize this new addictive drug but it's just doing what we can to stop the uh, the pipeline of people that are going to fall into addiction because they're lulled into this false sense that you know marijuana is really not that addictive and uh, that it's not going to be a gateway and lead to other addictive substances and to a life that will really be dis- dis- disabled because of the fact that they're dependent on using marijuana to, to solve their depression or their anxiety or whatever it might be because everyone's telling them that it's medical and it's okay and there's no problem with it. That is uh, kind of the uh, reminiscent of the early days when tobacco was really commercialized and there were doctors, you know, smoking certain type of cigarette and that was a a very well kind of thought through strategy you know 50 years ago when when, um, big tobacco was getting started and frankly big marijuana has followed the same well orchestrated strategy of introducing the idea of legalization after first de-risking it in the public's mind by marketing marijuana as a medical product and what that's done is really made people feel like there's really no no problem in in using marijuana because it it's being um um you know accepted as some type of medicine so uh i just see this major problem that conflicts with our public health needs and that is that there is a a profit motive in getting more people to use I mean, that's the nature of capitalism. You know, you want more people to use your product, and that's where you derive your profits. But in this case, if more people use marijuana, that's not going to be good for the public health of our country. It's not going to be good for the future of our country when you consider the uh, stark increase in teenage use of marijuana in those states where it has been legalized. And uh, we know a little bit about the impact of marijuana on the developing brain. We don't know enough, but I hate, hate to think that our intuition and our gut is wrong when it says that we will pay a heavy price by waiting for another 20 years to find out whether we knew intuitively what was going to happen, and that is that this was not going to be good for young people and that it was going to lead to a lot of disability and, you know, that we had had a chance to stop it early on, but we we didn't do it even though our common sense told us that it was something that we should do. I'd like to talk about the states where marijuana has been legalized. Can you talk about their ineffectiveness to properly regulate the industry? Marijuana obviously is building and amassing more and more power as the uh, market for selling marijuana grows and grows because of legalized uh, marijuana in the various states. And just like other powerful industries, um, when you amass great uh, wealth in a, in a given industry, that wealth can be put to uh, use you know, for 
stifling kind of regulations uh, that would otherwise impede the uh, making of additional money. You know, we are really seeing the impact of, of a huge lobby effort by big marijuana in these states to uh, allow for the commercialization of products that are, uh, like I said, elixirs, which are, are drinks, uh, where THC is infused, edibles, uh, which are all kinds of foods where, which THC is infused into, as well as the kind of vaping uh, products. I mean, for anybody over 40, they just don't know what the new marijuana that we're talking about really is all about. And I just am concerned that we're going to wake up, you know, and we're going to wonder how in the world do we let this happen, especially after having learned our lessons from uh, the over-marketing of uh, OxyContin by Purdue Pharma. And everybody is, uh, is so outraged by that. Uh, the more and more they learn about how Purdue Pharma really influenced CMS to change their regulatory oversight to really make pain and the indicator of pain one of the um, real uh, indicators for the prescribing of OxyContin. And so essentially um, the money was so big that it was influencing the American Medical Association, American Hospital Association, CMS, it was having a very destructive influence. And I use that as a um, a kind of metaphor for what is going to happen with marijuana. It's going to have a lot of money, and that money is going to have a very pernicious and destructive uh, impact in, in the public policy that's developed to kind of in, in concert with the legalization insofar as regulation is concerned, and, 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 and that public health element is just not going to be taken into account. What's your reaction to the whole wave of legalizing and normalizing marijuana? To what extent are we, in effect, doing something logical, and to what extent are we, in fact, opening the door to what a generation from now people will look back on as a major mistake? I you know, know of how much you have done in the area of criminal justice reform, and I uh, w- want to once again, you know, say to you that there is a, uh, all the indicators show that um, this has not been the panacea uh, for arrests amongst the minority community, um, the drug arrests. Um, we are seeing in uh, Colorado between 2012 and 2014, the percentage of Hispanic and African-American arrests for teens under 18 um, increased uh, by 29% and 58% respectively, while white youth decreased in arrests by 8%. That's pretty uh, stark comparison, and that shows that even with a legalization, we're not addressing the societal problem of um, the disproportionate number of arrests amongst uh, minority populations. So anyone who thinks that this pod industry is is going to be good for social justice, uh, they're ignoring the fact uh, that most pot shops um, are in minority neighborhoods uh, as opposed to white neighborhoods who want nothing to do with it. And that's really because we've seen the same with uh, alcohol. 
Uh, there are more liquor stores in minority neighborhoods than white neighborhoods, and that really is the reason why the NAACP of Detroit, the largest branch of the NAACP in the country, has come out against the legalization of marijuana in Michigan. That's why places like Compton, California, have uh, rejected uh, pot shops in their neighborhood because minority community knows that this is not good for the public health and for, uh, for their community. And, you know, anybody who's out there thinking they're on some social justice crusade by supporting legalization is just ignorant of what the real facts are. Next, when you've been through what Patrick Kennedy's been through, how do you fill the hole in the soul? The Westwood One Podcast Network, The Daily Wire's Ben Shapiro Show. What's amazing is that Joe Biden then gets called out by his own side and he runs screaming from his own bipartisanship. When people on the left are called out by their own side, they will not step forward to defend people with whom they are purportedly friends very often. It's pretty rare. The Ben Shapiro Show. Download and subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and the Westwood One Podcast app. Free, free from the Westwood One Podcast Network. Well, and I can testify that you have a beautiful family and uh, just a wonderful children. And, and in that sense, so that there has to be a great deal of joy in your life, which I think is an important thing for people to realize. It's not, it's not like you're grimly getting up every morning and saying, well, I'm, you know, I'm not going to do drugs today. You're also getting up every day surrounded by your kids and surrounded by with your wife and, uh, and doing positive things. I mean, I've been on the road with you uh, when you've had a tremendous impact on audiences so that you have a life that in many ways is remarkably fulfilling at this stage. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. It, it fills the hole in the soul. You know, it really does. I've been blessed uh, to find a purpose in my life, and I thought my purpose was higher office, <laughs> and I thought that would somehow fill that hole in my soul, and I was driven out of office really because of my inability to, to try to solve my addiction problem by myself. And the uh, God had bigger plans for me because after I left Congress, I was able to get married and have five children. And, and fortunately, I'm trying to every day break the cycle in my family of not exposing them to alcohol and drugs. And I'm fortunate to say that none of them have ever seen me um, intoxicated. And I'm uh, blessed to be able to say that. I think it means a lot to America to have you remain a public figure, to have you remain in the middle of this kind of advocacy. Uh, and I can tell our audience, based on my being with you around the country, that you do have a real impact and that people uh, leave having had their minds changed and having a whole new range of thoughts. So I just want to thank you as a fellow citizen for your continued activism and your continued involvement. Well, I appreciate that, Mr. Speaker, and I've really enjoyed being able to work with you and to um, learn from you and to see the uh, impact that you continue to have across the country, especially on how to improve our health care system and the delivery of health care in this country in a more accessible and affordable way. His personal story of his struggles with addiction and recovery are representative of what many Americans are facing today. 
As we consider the legalization of marijuana across the country, we ought to remember his story and really consider what don't we know about the effects of long-term marijuana use. Thanks for listening. Thank you to my guest, Congressman Patrick Kennedy. You can learn more about his story and his organization at don'tdenyme.org at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Westwood One. The executive producer is Debbie Myers. Our producer is Garnsey Sloan. Our editor is Robert Borowski. Our researcher is Hunter Estes. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. The music was composed by Joey Salvia. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360 and Westwood One's Tim Sabian and Robert Mathers. Please subscribe to Newt's World on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get entertaining podcasts. On the next episode of Newt's World, our immortal series continues with Julius Caesar, a legendary leader who still impacts our lives today. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. The Westwood One Podcast Network. Everyone's listening. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed... (laughs) Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350 plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote.